This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Tactics. Thank you so much for being with us here on the show where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. We appreciate you being on the program, whether you're joining us through YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch. Not the terrestrial signal right now because we're not actually on there. Uh, I've actually spoken to the people at News Radio 1440. They're hoping they'll be able to bring us back on very soon. It's a budgeting issue because our advertisers have taken a really big hit with the coronavirus. Hopefully that will be subsiding before too long. And speaking of the coronavirus, as it always is, this is just the time that we do it. This Thursday evening, we always, every Thursday, we go over the coronavirus numbers. So let's go ahead and get straight to it. You can look here. This is the latest numbers from the Alabama Department of Public Health. And you can see from the map there, and you can see the statistics that right now Alabama has 135,565 cases, 2,301 deaths, it has 15,339 total hospitalizations and uh, 993,440 tested. Wow, that's a lot of tests. So interesting, about, uh, interesting part about these numbers is when you're looking at the fatality rate, in other words, the ratio of people that have the virus, we have confirmed cases to the people that have died from it, that brings us down to a fatality rate of 1.7, which is down roughly, not exactly, but roughly, uh, not. Uh, I don't even remember how to say it, so yeah, okay, it would be uh, eight one-hundredths of a percent. So it is falling, but falling at a pretty low rate, and it seems that it's stabilized. Because we, we've seen it going down, and it'll probably continue going down a little bit more. But the fatality rate has more or less stabilized. And remember that according to the CDC's guidelines and, and the CDC's estimations, based on how many people actually have the virus versus the people that we have tested positive for the virus, they believe that it's roughly 10 times as many people actually have it as we have testing positive for it, which would mean the real figure is probably 0.71. That That's the real fatality rate, 0.17. So 0.17, that makes it still about 70-ish percent more deadly than the flu when looking at it overall. So still serious, still a big deal, but not anywhere near the levels that we were thinking originally. And we'll actually uh, play a clip later in the show that that harkens back to that and I'm not spoiling it because it's it just it's not even really the point of the clip it just harkens back to where we're at the time where President Trump was saying and and this took place back in uh this one took place back in far February remember that they estimated that the fatality rate on this thing was going to be anywhere from 1% to 5% and 1% to 5% would mean that the virus was at least 10 times to uh, f 500 times deadlier than the, the flu. Or sorry, uh, anywhere from 10 times to 50 times deadlier than the flu, and that simply did not play out in reality. Looking at it now in the state of Alabama, and this is pretty consistent with the fatality rates across the United States, at least now, 
we're seeing that it usually does wind up sticking around just somewhere between the 0.2 and 0.1% fatality rate, which makes it, you know, a little deadlier than the flu, but not even by a factor of two. It's not even twice as deadly as the flu. And so that's significantly, significantly less than we originally thought. And that does make a pretty substantial difference. When we're looking at something originally in February that we thought was going to be anywhere from 10 to 50 times deadlier than the flu, and it turns out to not even be twice as deadly, well, that, that should be a big sigh of relief to everybody, and, and that is certainly good. And, and also keep in mind that we were thinking the infection rates were going to be significantly higher. Originally, those estimates were somewhere in the 200 million range that, you know, roughly two-thirds of the American population were going to get this thing, and gang, we ain't even close to that. I mean, we're not even in the same ballpark with that here in the state of Alabama or anywhere else. Now, you're probably at least somewhere comparable to that in some of the really hard-hit areas. Like, there's at least a chance that you've got about half of New York, which is, of course, less than two-thirds, but you've got about half of New York's population having had it at some point because they got hit really hard really fast and it was very difficult to avoid and, and they got hit very early too. And so if you're realistically looking at the numbers, if we're believing the CDC's estimation and we have no reason not to, it was a good sample test, that about 10 times as many people have it as, as tested positive for it, then yeah, roughly half of New York City is probably about accurate, but it's way, de way less deadly than we thought. So even in New York City, which is literally worse than most countries, based on the fatality rate that they had. Even there, it's not as bad as was originally predicted. So that does help put some things into context and helps us better understand exactly where we are on this thing. So let's go ahead and dig into some of the numbers from the state of Alabama this week. So you can see here, these are the cases in the state of Alabama, our new cases. And... That's odd. I'm, for some reason, my computer is not wanting to uh, work with me here. All right, hang on just one second. That ought to do it. Sorry about that. All right, so our seven-day average for the new Alabama coronavirus cases is, and, and this is, of course, the week that we are currently in right now, is 1,323. The seven-day average for the previous week, 1,930, which means there is a decrease of 607, which sounds really, really good, but that's because last week was really, really bad. And so... It is good, that is absolutely the truth, but it's because we had further to fall, essentially. Last week was really bad. It's actually kind of a shame that I didn't have a chance to do a coronavirus update last week like I normally do because of scheduling conflicts and other things that I wound up having to do, and, and unfortunately I just wasn't able to bring one to you. Last week was pretty bad comparatively. Uh, we had a severe uptick, and even now we're not back to the pre uh, spike levels. And so we're kind of coming off of it. Obviously, a difference of over 600 cases per day is a good decrease. And it also means that this increase that we did see was not, you know, something to panic about or massive or something that was going to be sustained. But 
there's a good reason to to see that and say, okay, well, you know, this is something that we're we're coming off of. There was a pretty substantial uh, run of new cases last week. So let's look at that compared by the month. Again, this is new cases, and, and we're going by the averages here. So you can see that the 28-day average, which we're going to look at next, the 28-day average uh, is from, and, and, and this is, you know, since we've had the mask mandate, so keep that in mind. Obviously, we are currently under the mask mandate and Governor Ivey's order. Well, the 28-day average for the, the previous 28 days that we're in right now, 1,217. The previous 28-day average, this is the 28 days before the mask mandate was put into place because, of course, the mask mandate was put in place on July the 16th. 1,156, which means even though we have the mask mandate now and we are nearly an entire month, a full month removed, or a full two months, sorry, we're more than a month, we're almost a full two months from the implementation of Governor Ivey's mask mandate, we've still got more daily cases. Still, to this day, we have more daily cases than we did when we had no mask mandate. And I had people try to justify this or try to talk around it, trying to prove that the mask mandate, that, that it worked and that it was fine and, and it actually is helping I'm sorry it's not, because the only thing that the mask mandate is supposed to do is to keep people from catching the virus. And what do we have now? More people, after the mask mandate has been put in place, that have the virus. And I had some people saying, well, it takes time to take effect and people have to get used to it. Well, first of all, I don't know if you've been out where people are having to, to fall under this mask mandate. Uh, they had to do it pretty quick. In fact, one of the points that I brought up is that the truth is people were putting on the mask a couple weeks before the mandate was put in place. Some weren't, obviously, but th there was a pretty widespread of people wearing the mask and being more cautious before the mandate was ever put into place. That's how it works in America. We lead the government. The government doesn't lead us. Now, sometimes that means that we lead the government to do stupid things, but Nonetheless, that's, that's where we are. This is the way that America functions, is that uh, we do things and then the government follows behind us, not the other way around. And in this particular case, one thing that is so astounding here is that we were told that the mask mandate was going to save us, it was going to keep the spread from happening. Now, granted, as I've said for some time, as long as our death count is not climbing exponentially, as long as we are keeping the deaths down, it's really not necessarily a bad thing that a lot of people are getting sick. Obviously, I'd rather us just not be sick and everything be fine, but that's not the world that we live in. And so people actually getting some immunity, getting these antibodies, and having a higher number of cases, as long as the deaths are not coinciding with that, is actually a positive thing. However... The whole purpose of the mask mandate was to keep people from getting infected with the virus. And here we are, several weeks, nearly an entire two months afterward. Remember, the incubation period of this virus, which is a little long, but they, they make it longer than it actually is to be on the safe side, I guess. Because uh, realistically, it's closer to 10, but the incubation period for this virus is supposed to be about 14 days. Well, we're way past that at this point. 
We are way past the point of incubation. We are way past the point to where our infection rate should be, if the masks work, significantly lower than before we had the mask mandate in, in place. It hasn't happened. We did have a little bit of a dip originally when this started. So, uh, uh, you know, a little while after the mask mandate took place, we did see a little bit of a dip and then we saw a spike. Nothing changed. If the mask mandate was some magic X factor that caused cases to go down or protected people from getting the virus, then that would not be the case. We would either be in a downward trajectory or at the very least have seen a dip and see that dip hold. In other words, the, the mask mandate would have done its job, and then after that, just wearing the mask keeps you at the level that you're at. That's not what happened, gang. We saw, at least based on the averages, a full month after the mask mandate, a dip in daily averages, and then a couple weeks afterward, start spiking right back up. By the way, you know what other states saw a similar dip? Florida, Georgia, and Tennessee. Three of our four bordering states, every single one of them, no mask mandate. They got exactly the same results without the mask mandate. Which would lead you to believe, because if we're talking about science, this is what a control group in an experiment looks like. Which, by the way, is the reason that the founders set us up as a federalist system, so that we could compare state to state and see which plan and, and which policy. Well, that's playing out right here. We have several states around us that did not implement the mask mandate. We have our other neighbor, Mississippi to the west, who did implement a mask mandate just like we did in roughly the same time. And you know what? Every single state has a similar pattern of cases. The only conclusion that you can draw from this is that mask mandates do not have an effect on the rate of when this virus is contracted. So that being said, let's go ahead and look at hospitalizations. So hospitalizations, the seven day average for this week, 89. The seven day average for last week, 101. So we're down on hospitalizations. That's definitely good. That's a decrease of 12, not massive, but 12 less people going to the hospital for this virus every day. You know, that does add up over time. And so the fact that we're in a downward trend on that one is certainly a good thing because like I've said, you may not be able to necessarily say that getting uh, more cases of the virus are a bad thing because if more people are, are getting immunity to it and developing antibodies to it, that could actually be a positive. It's always a good thing when there are less hospitalizations and less deaths, obviously. And let's look at the 14-day averages to see how we're doing on that. The 14-day average period that we're in right now, that is 95.2. The previous 14-day average, 122. So that's a decrease of roughly 27. So that's certainly a good thing. I'm not even sure why I included the decimal point on that one. Let's just say it's 95. It is a decrease, though, of, um, of 27. And so that's a positive for sure. Now, Let's go ahead and look at the new COVID deaths, the seven-day average for the week that we are in right now. That is 12.9. The seven-day average for last week, 31.6. So like I said, last week, pretty bad week. 
It was not a good week for the state of Alabama when it came to coronavirus deaths, and that's not because we, not merely because we had an increase in cases, which I think you could argue could be a good thing or a bad thing. Obviously, deaths are a bad thing. And so the fact that we had a decrease of 18.7 is good, but the reason that we're having such a dramatic decrease is because we had an awful lot of deaths last week, and because of that, obviously, when, when people die, they can't die again. And so that's why you're seeing the numbers that you do. It's, it's a great thing that we had a decrease, but the reason that we had a dramatic decrease is because we had far to fall. For example, just to use this as an analogy, if you are a person that weighs 400 pounds, you will be able to drop 50 pounds significantly faster and easier than a person that weighs 250 pounds you can drop that weight much, much easier than that person. But the 350-pound person still looks significantly, if they're about the same height, still looks significantly less healthy and is less healthy than the person that is 200 pounds. That dropping of 50 pounds of weight is far more significant to the person that was already at a lower starting point, even though dropping that 50 pounds was way harder for him because there's a law of diminishing returns there. So it's certainly a good thing that we shaved off a lot of those excess deaths, but the reason that there were a lot of them to shave off, the reason that we were able to fall so far in such a quick amount of time and, and drop the, the death rate is because we had a really bad week last week, and so that is certainly unfortunate, but that's part of the reason we were able to see that drop. Let's go ahead and look at the death rate for mask versus no mask. The 28-day period that we are in right now, so the, the daily average for the previous 28 days, 17.1. The 28-day average for the period directly before the mask mandate was put into place, 14.3. Now, part of that, as I've said, part of that is because what we saw earlier was a pretty big spike in cases, and so uh, we had a really bad week last week, and so because of that, and, and remember that would of course be included in the 28-day average, because last week would be included in that 28 days, that means that it's going to be slightly inflated, but the, the point is is that the mask mandate is certainly not having an effect on the death rate. Now, we, we knew that it wouldn't. It's supposed to only affect uh, the, the rate at which people contract the virus, but it is an increase of 2.8 overall looking at the month before we had a mask mandate and the month afterward. And so I'm so tired of seeing all these ridiculous memes all over the internet saying, mask up, it saves lives. Uh, no, it don't. I mean, I, I know it might make you feel better. I know that it might make you feel all warm and fuzzy to think that you're doing something productive by wearing a mask, but I'm sorry, the science is simply not behind that, that idea. Wearing masks do not save lives. Doesn't necessarily hurt you in most cases. Uh, there actually is some evidence that suggests that it will, and we're going to get into that in a second. But the point in all of that is, is that it doesn't help. Masking up is not saving any lives. Now, let's say that you're visiting somebody that is at high risk, and you wear a mask in order to be able to do that because you're afraid that you might, you know, keep in mind, I'm a cancer patient. I'm not going through chemo right now, but when I did, my immune system was depleted to literally zero. I had a, I had a white blood cell count that was so low they couldn't measure it. And so there was a brief time, thank God I didn't get sick when that took place, 
But there was a brief time where I was almost completely immune compromised and was unable to fight off any kind of virus or infection. If I had gotten the coronavirus, when that took place, despite being a, a younger person, there's a good chance that it would have been very rough for me, could have even ended in my death. So if that had happened and my dad had to wear a mask around me or the nurses that attended to me had to wear a mask around me, okay, then it might actually save a life because you're dealing specifically with somebody that is very vulnerable to it. And even though the mask isn't a great defense, it's probably better than nothing. And so in that specific circumstance, yeah, maybe a mask saves a life then. Do you really think wearing a mask while you're walking to and from your table, especially when you take it off to eat and spend the entire, you know, half hour in the restaurant without wearing a mask and eating and drinking because you have to use your face to do those things. Do you really think that doing that or walking around with a mask outside when it's freaking 98 degrees outside, it's Alabama in, in September. I mean, September's a summer month in Alabama. That's just the way that it works. It always has been. Do you really think that that's saving a life? No. And so we've gotten to such a level of ridiculousness, and the mask mandate certainly isn't saving any lives. I mean, that is objectively true by every measure that you can look at now. The idea that a mask mandate works, especially after seeing those numbers, is frankly just laughable. Like, I, people, if they're telling you that the mask mandate, it works, that it's helping, that it's effective, one of two things is going on here. Either they are completely ignorant of the data, they have not looked at the data, they've not looked at the research, they haven't actually done a comparison to a mask mandate state versus a no mask mandate state, or even just Alabama before we had the mask mandate. They're either ignorant of the data and they just don't know the raw numbers and they are making an assumption because that's what they think it ought to be, ergo, that's what they pretend that it is, or, and this one is probably significantly less common, but it still happens, they want the mask mandate to be true, ergo it is true in their own mind. This is the difference in science and scientism. Science is a method for extracting truth. It is a, it's not an ideology, it's not a deity, it is just a method for finding truth. Hypothesizing, experimentation, uh, being able to repeat an experiment, all of those things. All science is is a, is a methodology. That's it. Good nor bad, it just is. Scientism is science as a religion. And in many ways, to the people that are adherents to this, the mask has become a religious totem. That if we do the right sacrifice to the God of science, if we wear the mask and prove that we are true believers, then there will be a magical veil of protection around us that protects us from the virus because we worship at the altar of science. See, science says that there are real-world practical answers out there that may be able to help, may be able to help, you know, stop the virus, you know, like vaccines, for example. Scientism is the answers must be conjured. It's a weird combination of science and mysticism. This belief that science is basically the magical MacGuffin that does whatever you need it to do. Uh, a great example of this, and this is a goofy example, but it's one that works. If you've ever played the Sonic the Hedgehog games, the Chaos Emeralds are basically just magical MacGuffins that do whatever the heck the plot demands that it do. 
You need it to be a battery? Okay, it's a battery. You need it to be able to warp space? Okay, it can warp space. Like, the Chaos Emeralds can, can just do whatever they need to do at the moment. And so that's kind of the way that science, uh, adherence to scientism view science, that whatever science needs to do, it can do. It's basically just this uh, universal being. And I think that science does provide a lot of answers. I am a fan of science. I, I mean, I have a bachelor's degree in science. I specifically opted for a BS when there were bachelors of arts available to me instead of just doing a straight communication degree. I specifically wanted to go the science route because I wanted to take harder biologies, some of the, the life sciences that come with agriculture, because, of course, I'm an ag I was an ag comm major. That's what my degree is in. I specifically did that because I see value in science. Scientism is not that. And this is the problem that has been going on with the whole mask mandate is that this is the, the other option that I was talking about. Yes, there are some people that are just ignorant of the data and don't know that the data does not support the idea that mask mandates make a difference. But the people that are scientismist, if that's even a word, I'm, I just made that up right now. Uh, but the people that are in that camp, they believe it because it's their religion and they're going to believe regardless of what the, the math and the science says. Because to them, it's a religion. They, they just have to have faith. They don't have to actually see the science and the data backing it up. Now, you know, disclaimer, all faith does not mean you discount science. Blind faith does. And that's what is going on with those who are adherents to scientism. And to, you know, illustrate this, remember that we are in day 57 of the mask mandate. We are way, 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 way past the 14-day Incubation period, July 16th, that was 57 days ago, and we're still having higher rates of contraction than we did in the time before Alabama had a mask mandate. And keep in mind that when we're looking at this, here's the thing. I'm not saying for sure that the masks offer no protection or don't work at all, but the data on daily mask wearing and the average person wearing masks, there is no data that backs up the idea that that is a significant factor in limiting the spread of this or any other respiratory virus. Because yes, COVID-19, the coronavirus, um, the, I forget the, the actual medical abbreviation, it's, it's SARS, novelty SARS-2 or something like that. This specific strain of the SARS virus is very new. But it's in that same family of SARS, the virus, functions in a similar way. Some of the symptoms are a little different. Some of the symptoms are actually more severe, but it's the same virus in that same family. And when we're talking about transmission, it transmits essentially the same way. And it's also roughly the same size. And so mask wearing would be about the same across the SARS virus family spectrum. And We've been dealing with the original SARS virus in Asia, at least. It didn't really come to America in a big way. But we've been dealing with that virus since 2003. So this virus is a new strain, but as far as the transmission goes, this is a problem that we actually have several years worth, 17 to be exact, years worth of data on whether or not the mask actually make a difference. And remember that in Asia... We're dealing primarily with China. Other Asian countries too, but especially this is true with China. They tend to be societies that are not nearly as freedom-minded as us. They're a fairly compliant society. 
When the government tells them something, they usually tend to more or less believe it and comply with it. And that's partly because it's just a difference in culture, and it's partly because in China, they will kill you if you don't comply. And so that makes a pretty significant difference in how compliant the general population is. For example, when they were starting out all of this quarantining, our government, I think the response was ridiculously overbearing, but they weren't literally barricading people and posting guards at their door to keep them inside their house. That was happening on a regular basis inside China. And so you can see how the combination of a much more authoritarian government combined with a culture that is much less freedom-minded than the American people would result in an environment that if mask mandates did work, you would think the best place to prove it would be there. And yet, even though there have been many studies conducted on the effectiveness of masks, there has not been a single study in the 17 years that we've had to deal with this thing that have shown that there is a significant difference made by people wearing masks all the time. The data simply is not there, and by this point, we should have that if that were the case. There is not one empirical study that has ever proven that masks are effective in this way. And you don't have to take my word for it. You don't even have to take some other right-wing newscaster. You don't have to take the Daily Wire or the Blaze, uh, Mark Levin, Sean Hannity, any of the other guys that are on News Radio 1440 like me. You don't have to take our word for it. This is the CDC. The same CDC that, that we've been talking about and have, you know, flipped back and forth on everything. This is the CDC. And in in, by the way, this study was released. The, these findings were released. This page was published this year under the section marked face mask. In our systematic review, we identified 10 RCTs that reports, uh, reported estimates of effectiveness of face mask in reducing laboratory-confirmed influenza virus infections in the community from the literature published during 1946 through July 27, 2018 in pooled analysis. We found no significant reduction in influenza transmission with the use of face masks. So that's, of course, with the common flu, and later on their findings said essentially exactly the same thing, that there was, and, and by the way, the influenza virus is roughly the same size and transmits in roughly the same way as the coronavirus. And so that's the CDC saying that we looked at 10 different studies that were taken over long periods of time. There was no evidence that influenza specifically was somewhat inhibited by widespread mask wearing. And I know that some people are going to look at that and say, well, can you give me a study on coronavirus? Well, I can and I will here in a second, or, or at least something in the, the SARS family of viruses. And they say, but Caleb, I can search the internet. I can Google something and, and there will be all kinds of studies that show that the masks do work. Well, here's the thing. In a lab, that is accurate. Because I went out and, and tried to search and find studies that were showing masks were effective. And I did find several. Do you know what every single one of them had in common? Every single one that I looked at, maybe there's one that didn't, but every single one that I found in common, they were all measuring the effectiveness of masks in a laboratory. And the reason that this makes such a significant difference is because what they were essentially doing is not 
looking at the rate of infection across people wearing masks on a daily basis on a wide spectrum, just going about living their life, but also wearing a mask. It's where they would bring a person in, they would have them mask up, do so properly, and have them, you know, lean down into some kind of measuring thing that measures the amount of droplets coming out of their regular mouth and then their mouth after it's been covered by the mask. Now, if you do that, the reduction in the number of droplets coming forth from that person, I'm certain, are less. The studies do prove that. But that doesn't make a huge difference in real life. Because you have people that are not wearing their mask properly. Uh, you have people that actually will take more risk. And this is something that was talked about by uh, one of Canada's top doctors, basically the Ontario version of Dr. Fauci, or I guess Scott Harris, because, you know, Ontario being sort of a state of Canada, it would have been like the, the equivalent to Scott Harris here in Alabama, our top physician. Uh, he said that the, the risk there with widespread mask wearing is that people will actually be less cautious and think that they're invincible. They will walk around gleefully with a mask thinking that that functions as a shield and that they can be less cautious and do whatever they want as long as they have the mask on. The same thing was said by the essentially the Dr. Fauci of Sweden, who said that the reason that they did not have some kind of mask mandate was for exactly the same reason, that people will assume that as long as they have a mask on, that they are safe and they can do what they want, and that people are not good at wearing masks properly and doing so cor the correct way. And I'm not even just talking about having it cover your nose and mouth. It, it needs to be fitted correctly. Uh, you need to be able to, to breathe through it without it. You know, th there's, there's all kinds of factors going on here. And then on top of that, there's also the risk of somebody, even if they're wearing it properly at the moment, then they take the mask off, they're touching the outside of the mask, and then because it gets on their fingers, it winds up on their face. They also found in a study uh, that was done, and they observed students wearing the different mask, that a, a student that was wearing a mask, this was done at a college, is 27 times more likely to touch their face than one that isn't. So they looked at the amount of times a student was touching his face, wearing a mask versus not wearing a mask. Consistently, what they found over their sample size is that the people that were touching their, or the people that were touching their face, they did so 27 times more when they were wearing a mask, which actually increased the rate of transmission from this virus. So yes, the studies that show that masks work well, they all take place in a lab setting where there are medical professionals making sure the person is wearing the mask properly and they're measuring it for that couple of minutes that they're measuring the amount of particles coming out of their mouth with a mask on versus a mask off. That is not reflective of how effective they are being worn by the average layman wandering around in real life. It's the same reason that dietary studies are virtually impossible to do. Because first of all, part of this has nothing to do with the fact that it's in a lab versus not in a lab. Uh, it's long-term effects, and so it's much harder to measure long-term effects, especially when you're talking about a person that is dieting. Because the average person just doesn't write down every single thing that they eat throughout the day. That's just not something that is uh, reasonable to ask a person to do, especially over like a 10-year period and never make a mistake or never miss something. Like that's, that's just not a thing that you can do with human beings. And that's why it's very, very hard to do dietary, dietary studies. But the second half of that, 
and this is what makes it similar to the kind of things that we're talking about with the virus, is that your behavior in a lab is different than your behavior everywhere else. I mean, if you could sit people down in a lab and very carefully monitor everything that they eat and see the effects on their bodies over the span of about a decade, well, yeah, that would be a very good dietary study, but we would essentially have to enslave people and make sure that they do nothing other than participate in the study in order to get that data. That's simply not feasible. That's not something that we ought to be doing, and, and because of that, it makes dietary studies very hard. And so we can have some limited success in measuring it in a laboratory, that once people go out into the real world and are living their life as a normal person, that study becomes pretty much useless. And so the same thing is happening here with the virus. It would be great if we could just have essentially a fake city that we could create, if we could just take, you know, a few dozen acres and create an entire fake city that is self-contained and where we could, we could monitor every single person 24 hours a day and inject a couple of people that have the coronavirus and then measure over the span of a few weeks how effective mask wearing is, yeah, that would be fantastic. We can't do that. There's simply no way to do that. The closest thing that we do have is measuring the rate of contraction of people with mask mandates versus not mask mandates. And so far, every single time that that has been done, they've been shown the mask don't work. Maybe they do work in a lab. I think that they probably do based on the evidence that I've seen. So if you have a medical professional monitoring you 24 hours a day and making sure you're wearing your mask properly when you're going out to dinner and to work and everything else, yeah, you're probably getting similar results to the ones they're having in the lab. But short of having your own personal physician monitor you 24 hours a day, you're not going to get the same results. And that's why these uh, tests that are showing, these studies that are showing that masks are effective simply are not relevant to whether or not they work in real life. A further illustration of that, you can see this from the Mayo Clinic in a study that they did when it came to face masks. Can face mask help slow the spread of coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 caused by COVID-19 that causes COVID-19? Yes, face mask combined with other preventative measures such as frequent hand washing and social distancing help slow the spread of the virus. So again, it's all contingent upon the other things. If mask wearing were this magic bullet that just helped solve the problem, then it wouldn't have to be combined with other factors. Now, combining with other factors may make it more effective, but just mask wearing on its face, pun intended, just mask wearing on its face should have made a difference without those other factors if it were actually effective in doing something productive. Even when Mayo Clinic puts out a statement saying that face masks work, they have to hedge it with all of these conditions. Well, yes, it works if you're doing it properly and if you're doing it in this specific way and you're adding all these other things that you're doing, well, then the X factor could just be washing your hands. The X factor could be just social distancing more. If that's the case, then it could also be that the mask, man, the mask itself is not doing a dang thing. If it only takes place, if that, uh, if that spread is only slowed down in the presence of all those other factors, then the mask is not a factor. And this is the problem that you run into. Um, notice how they, they do always hedge that language 
Well, it would be kind of like me saying, well, a chain link fence, because they say it can help. They don't say that it does help. Uh, well, you know, a, ch a chain link fence can protect you from a Nerf bullet. Yeah, it can. If I fire a Nerf gun at you on the other side of a chain link fence, there's a chance that that bullet is going to hit one of the parts of the fence and bounce off. There's also a really good chance that it goes through. And in fact, that's not even a great analogy because the virus is actually 30 times smaller than the filtration level of your standard cloth mask or surgical mask. Which would mean that if, let's say, somebody, you know, is around you and the virus is spread and it's in your general vicinity, you've got about a 1 in 30 chance of the mask stopping it. That's a far cry from the sure thing that most people act like it is. And again, like I've said, maybe it offers some protection. Maybe in some circumstances it's going to help with that. But that also means that, you know, in the reverse, because of course the, the natural counter to this, and I can already hear the comment section blowing up with this, the natural counter to this, which is accurate, is that you're typically only wearing the mask to protect others, not yourself. Okay, well then that also means there's only a 1 in 30 chance that if you have the virus and you are breathing out, there's only a 1 in 30 chance that the mask is going to stop that either. See, it works both ways. The masks aren't a magical one-way mirror that they only keep things in and they don't keep things out. That's not how the mask works. It's more effective that way. But it's not like that, you know, it's impossible to spread the virus when you're wearing the mask on you. But the other part of this is the, there was a, actually a randomized test done on cloth mask, and they found that the N95 was more effective. That's accurate. I, I've actually been saying that since, like, I don't know, early February. And so I actually was, was pretty early on that. But they did a randomized test of cloth mask, which was conducted in 2015 with similar respiratory illnesses and viruses. And this was the findings that they had. This was summarized. Science Daily didn't do it, but they summarized the findings. And so they said the widespread use of cloth masks by healthcare workers may actually put them in increased risk of respiratory illness and viral infections, and their global use should be discouraged, according to the N, uh, UNSW study. So what's so important about this, and just to spare you getting into all the technicalities, there were essentially two reasons why they found that the mask could potentially make you less safe from the virus. One is that, of course, it's something that we've been talking about already. People weren't wearing it properly. People were more likely to touch their face. People were more likely to make content. And basically, after 20 minutes, the mask is completely worthless. And the reason for that is the second part of this, which is breathing like that over and over again. After several minutes of doing so, usually only about 20 minutes, it starts building up moisture which becomes a fertile ground for breeding bacteria. And this is a thing that you are holding on your face, which meant that you were actually more likely to contract a virus if you're wearing it for more than 20 minutes at a time. This thing has about a shelf life of 20 minutes, so if you're wearing it any more than that, this thing could actually become a bacteria trap that means you are more likely to get infected. And so... 
if you are somebody that is has a box of surgical mask and is changing every 20 minutes, that's probably not super effective, but it's at least having some impact. If you're wearing it more than 20 minutes, if you're having to wear it in your office or, you know, out when you're doing something, if you're doing it for more than 20 minutes, it's basically worthless at that point, according to this study. It actually makes you more vulnerable to the virus. And remember, what's so important about this is that study was done in a medical setting. It wasn't done in a lab like some of the tests that we were talking about where there's someone actually monitoring you and making sure you're putting the mask on correctly and then breathing out. It's not quite that, but it was done in a school for medical students. These were medical professionals that were wearing the mask. And even amongst that population, they found that it was not effective and might actually increase your risk of contracting any kind of respiratory or viral disease. So if these are the people that are most well-educated about hygiene and keeping themselves clean and protecting themselves from infection and wearing the mask correctly, what chance do you think they have for the average Joe? Do you really think the average person, and I'm not you know, trying to downplay that or, or try to say that the average person is an idiot or anything, it's just you're not a medical professional. And so the average person is just not as good or well-informed as doctors and nurses that are working in a hospital like this study surveyed. And so with that being said, it's got to be even less effective for the average person walking around on the, uh, on the street. Despite all of this debate, despite all of the evidence that shows at the very best, it's still a question mark whether ma masks actually have any effect. Based on all the data, it's shown that they haven't. Despite all of this debate, the thing that infuriates me the most is that all of these decisions were made by executive fiat. Whether you're talking about Governor Kay Ivey here in Alabama or people in other places that evoked mask mandates, not only were they done despite the fact that the science doesn't back up their effectiveness, but they were also done in such a way that the governors essentially just ignored the legislature, ignored any kind of governmental process, and decided that they had the power to do this stuff. And I've already proven through uh, Alabama's legal system, Governor Ivey certainly does not have the power to do something like that. I've already done that. That was done back on the 16th when the mask mandate was actually put into effect. But anyway, even with all of this, even when, with all these question marks surrounding whether or not masks are actually effective or not, they still decided to put a mask mandate in and did it completely circumventing the people of Alabama or our legislature. It's one of the most detestable things that I've seen in government for a long time. It's bad enough when governors and, and executives do this for anything, but especially on something that we know isn't effective, at least at least if the science was settled and it was proven that mass mandates absolutely worked, I would still question the constitutionality of it. And I'm not just, I'm not talking about the federal constitution. I'm talking about Alabama's constitution. I would still think that that was not something that Governor Ivey had the right to do, but at least you would be able to say, yeah, well, she didn't have the right to do it and she shouldn't have, but it was an emergency situation and at least it is helping with stopping the spread of the virus, except it's not. So not only did she completely 
circumvent the rights of the people of Alabama and the legislature and just do whatever the heck that she wanted, invent powers for herself as the governor. But she did so despite the fact that there was no evidence to support that the policy that she implemented was a good idea, which is kind of the reason that we have checks and balances and don't just have an executive that is all-powerful and can do whatever the heck that they want to within our state. This is a perfect example of why these level of emergency powers should not exist for an executive. Well, I say they shouldn't exist. They actually don't exist. Governor just said it, and then everybody kind of went along with it. But anyway... However, when it comes to Meemaw, there actually is some good news. Now, this is related, of course, to the coronavirus. It doesn't really have anything to do with the mask. Governor Ivey, despite her flaws, despite the fact that she is pretty far from being my favorite person right now because of the ridiculous stay-at-home orders and the mask mandates and all this other garbage that she just decided she had the authority to do and made up uh, governor powers out of whole cloth, but... Leaving all that aside for a moment, one thing that she has done that, that I think actually she's done a pretty decent job on is spending money that was given to us by the federal government through the CARES Act. Despite all of her flaws, Meemaw is darn good at spending money. That's one of her favorite things. It's part of the reason that I've said for a long time she is not a conservative and never has been. Boy, does she love spending measures. She has never seen a spending measure she did not like. She is the queen of of spending taxpayer dollars. And that is what she's doing right now. To be fair to Governor Ivey, this is money that was given to the state by the federal government. And, you know, you got to spend it or you got to do something with it. You can't like essentially just redistribute it to the taxpayers of Alabama, even though that would be awesome if they, they actually did do that. Um, heck, that might actually be a better way to do that. I got to send that idea to somebody. But... Uh, they sent, you know, they sent the CARES Act. They did this and, and sent it to Alabama and Governor Ivey had to figure out something to do with it. And so the things that she has decided to do with it, I actually think are pretty good. Because like I said, Meemaw is, is excellent at spending money. That is like her one talent. And so there were $300 million allocated to unemployment. So basically what this was doing is Alabama's coffers, for obvious reasons, are running low right now. And we were going to have to do something to keep unemployment going. Now, I don't think that the state should be involved in unemployment anyway, but we are. And because of that, we're on the hook for the money that has been promised. Ergo, the fact that the, the cupboards were running bare and they had to do something to refill them. And Governor Ivey decided to use this money to do that and to accomplish that purpose and to fulfill the government's obligation that they have made. That was a good move because she did so specifically to try to keep taxes from having to be raised. That makes sense to me. And so uh, good on Governor Ivey for doing that. And also, and this is a, one that's a little more interesting and I have a little more expertise in, $72 million went to uh, universities, various universities in Alabama, Auburn, Troy, AUM, UAB, uh, Tuscaloosa Tech, all those different universities. They went to all of them. And specifically, the $72 million was allocated to improving their remote learning capabilities. Now, this is something that's really interesting. Because those of you who may not know, I'm actually, I haven't started classes yet. I'm going to be starting classes next semester. But uh, I've been working with, on the master's program here at Faulkner, 
their entire Bible master's program is completely remote. And we're not a state university. We're, of course, a private university. But this is something that has been done for a while. It wasn't even in response to the coronavirus. This was true before we even knew what a, what a Wuhan was. And it all functions online. You can't even go to a physical classroom. They do the lessons all online, and they're all-night classes. And so this is something that I think that universities have kind of been moving to already anyway. And the fact that Auburn and Alabama are offering this is good for our state in a couple of ways. First of all, just having that technology available is better for us in general because universities were sort of moving to this model of education anyway. And the second half of that, and I think that it is just as important, if not more so, this is a fantastic recruiting tool for the universities because you have somebody that lives way out, let's say in California, but they really, really want to be an engineering major at Auburn or a law student at the University of Alabama. If they really want to do that, and these remote programs are put in place to where they can get their entire degree online and not actually have to go to the main campus, you know, personally, I'd rather have a more traditional college experience. I'm glad that I lived in Auburn and went to classes in a, an actual physical classroom when I did. But especially in light of this virus, I mean, it, it shows us why these remote facilities and having the capability to do stuff like this is really important. And so kudos to approving this program as well. I don't always like the things that G Governor Kay Ivey does. I have some pretty obvious disagreements with her. But dang it, she can spend some money, and she's pretty good at that. And so she actually did a fairly good job at that, and as she usually does. So we'll go ahead and take a quick break here, and we'll be back in just a moment on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us. Let's go now to the Daily Dose of Stupid. Now you messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. <laughs> and today's Daily Dose of Stupid, they've caught Trump in a lie. That's right, they caught Trump red-handed. They caught him lying. Just And, and this is going to be, because the media is convinced, this is going to be the thing that takes him down, the thing that is going to be the, the final nail in the coffin of the Trump presidency and administration. You know, just like the... Billy Bush tape and, you know, the Paul Manafort scandal and the Still dossier and, and Jeff Sessions colluding with the Russians and Donald Trump Jr.'s emails and when he fired James Comey and the Stormy Daniels thing and George Papadopoulos and Roger Ailes and the Mueller report and the Ukraine call or, you know, when he supposedly was calling World War I vets suckers and losers and didn't want to go to visit their graves. Just like all those times, this is the end of the Trump president. You know, for a guy that is still president, Trump has had an awful lot of ends to his presidency. His presidency has ended an awful lot for a guy that is still in office. So this is the stupidity that we're going to be focusing on in this Daily Dose of Stupid. The media always convinces itself that these things are really big deals and, and they're going to have some kind of major impact on the election or in, in some of the cases of, that I've just mentioned that it's going to result in his impeachment or removal from office or all these other things. And nothing comes of it. It's always the same old story, the same old, as Aerosmith would put it, the same old song and dance. 
It's just the way that it is. Which is another great song, actually. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so far, all of the Trump scandals, because the media is, is sort of like the football, or sorry, sort of like Charlie Brown with the football. You know, Lucy just constantly puts that football out there for Charlie Brown to kick, and no matter how many times he winds up trying to kick it and she pulls it away, he does it every single time. She always somehow convinces him that this is going to be the time that he kicks the football, and then she always rips it away at the last second. This is no different. The media is Charlie Brown. They constantly think that this is the thing that is going to get Trump. This is the end of it. The, the noose is closing around his neck. The walls are, are closing in. He's got nowhere left to go. And then, of course, it winds up being a giant nothing burger. So all of these scandals fall into, best I could tell, four different categories. One, crap we already knew. This would be, for example, the Stormy Daniels scandal or the Mueller report. That there is this sort of imaginary cloud hanging over the head that, uh, you know, once this breaks or once this comes out, that it's going to be a big deal and it's going to end Trump's reputation, even with his base and his presidency and everything. And then it turns out we already knew that. We already knew that Trump was inc incredibly horrible when it came to women in the Stormy Daniels thing. When the Mueller report came out, it was just telling us that the White House was chaotic and there was a lot of turnover, which, you know, we kind of already knew wasn't really a big deal. The second category, stuff other people did. So these are your Paul Manafort's or your Roger Ailes. Uh, some of it was overzealous prosecution. Some of it turns out you could even say that it was, uh, with in the case of Papadopoulos or Flynn, that it was overzealous to the point that it was almost entirely made up, that there was really nothing to it. Uh, when they did the investigation, it turns out there was, there was no there there. And so just stuff that other people that are not named Donald Trump did that Donald Trump was not involved with. With the Paul Manafort, the Roger Ailes thing, some of that stuff was legitimate. It just had nothing to do with President Trump. And so that's part of it. Uh, the third category is mountains out of mo molehills. So when they take something that is seemingly pretty insignificant and they try to make it into this really big overbearing thing. Uh, this is the case with, for example, the Ukraine call where they, they took a call that... By the way, it was not a perfect call, despite what President Trump will tell you. It was not a perfect call. It was not something where there was, there was nothing to it, but it wasn't really that big a deal. And they tried to make it into this thing that, I mean, they literally impeached him. Uh, they didn't remove him from office. Technically, they did impeach him, but they didn't remove him from office. Those are two different things. So they impeached the president over a call that was, I mean, really nothing. It kind of sounds like a quid pro quo it would be very hard to prove that. And even if it were a quid pro quo, you couldn't really prove that the quid pro quo was something that the president shouldn't be doing. And so, you know, it was kind of murky. It was not the, the best look for President Trump, but it's also not something that was worth all the hullabaloo that came as the result of it. And the same thing with the Donald Trump Jr. emails. Like, that was something that we didn't know. It was new information, and it didn't look good. But it was not nearly as severe as people were trying to make it out to be. And then finally, uh, actually, you could say the Jeff Sessions thing falls into that as well, because they also tried to say that when he fired Jeff Sessions, that that was going to be obstruction of justice. But he, you know, that didn't have anything to do with it. And so as much as I disagreed with the president's decision to fire Jeff Sessions, that was not something that was him trying to obstruct justice or try to curtail the Mueller uh, investigation because Jeff Sessions went, but... Bob Mueller still stayed on as the special counsel. And so 
trying they're trying to make something bigger out of what it actually is. And then finally, there's just crap they made up. Stuff that has no basis in truth. It was just things that were manufactured by the political enemies of Donald Trump to try to make him look bad, and then doesn't go anywhere. So that would be your still dossier, which we thought for a long time was real, but then it turns out it wasn't. And then you also have, for example, the, the World War II, or sorry, World War I vet stuff that they're trying to make a big deal out of now. But what, I think 10 witnesses as of this, this uh, episode, I believe it's 10 witnesses have now come out and said, no, we were there and he never said that. And we even have, for example, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who was, was with him at the time, saying that that was not true. We even have Trump's own political enemies, uh, the walrus himself, coming out as, uh, who was that? I think that's Michael Savage that came up with that. John Bolton coming out and saying, no, not a big Trump fan, don't like him, wrote an entire book trying to ruin the guy. Uh, but he didn't say that. Not true. And so you even have people that don't like Trump coming out and saying, nope, that simply didn't happen. So, you know, you occasionally have stuff that is completely made up. Which one of these four categories does this fall into? Well, I'll let you decide based on the details. So the first clip is a clip that they're making a big deal out of that seems kind of benign on its face, but pay attention because they're saying that the, the scandal comes into play when you combine it with the next clip we're going to show. So this is the original quip, uh, clip that was recently released by Bob Woodward, who's doing a book on President Trump. This is Trump talking about the coronavirus. You just breathe the air. That's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. Okay, so in that clip, what President Trump is talking about there is the virus may be airborne, it may be really easy to contract, and it, it may be even worse when you get the sickness than even your strenuous, few, uh, um, your, your strenuous uh, flus. Which, by the way, most of that turned out to be accurate. Now, it wasn't as bad as they were predicting when this was recorded and on February the 7th. It wasn't nearly as deadly. It did have a high contraction rate, a higher contraction rate than the flu, but not nearly as bad as we thought that it was. And it is worse than the flu for certain people. If you're over a certain age, if you have a comorbidity, something like that. So there was some truth to that. And on its face, it seems like there's nothing wrong with Trump saying that the reason that the, the Democrats are saying that this is scandalous is because they're saying that Trump knew it was really bad. They knew that it was going to be a very bad virus, but then intentionally downplayed it for some kind of political or perceived political gain. And that is proven by this clip that happens significantly later, over a month later, on March the 19th, where Trump was talking about downplaying the virus. Now it's turning out it's not just old people, Bob. Just today and, and yesterday, some startling facts came out. It's not just old, older yeah, exactly. young people to plenty of young people. It's clear just from what's in on the public record that you went through a pivot on this to, oh my God, the gravity is uh, almost inexplicable and unexplainable. Well, I think, Bob, really, to be honest with sure, you... Sure, I want you to I be. wanted to... Uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. Ooh, they've got him now. 
Trump didn't want the public to panic. That makes him a very bad, very orange man. So the allegation here, it's not that hard to understand. What they're trying to say is, this is Trump saying, well, I always wanted to downplay the virus. Uh, but, you know, they're saying that that combined with the February 7th clip, that that proves that Trump knew that the virus was very, very, very bad and that it was going to be this, this huge ordeal and that he was intentionally trying to downplay the dangers of the virus and, in his own words, trying to do it to prevent a panic. Now, whether or not you agree with the idea that any government official, right or left, should be less than forthcoming with people in order to try to keep a panic from happening, we could have that debate. I think that, you know, there's, there's merits to both sides of that. Uh, and that, that is true regardless of who it is. But here's the thing. That's not what Pro President Trump is saying there anyway. Have you met President Trump, media, You've been covering him for, what, five years now, almost? Have you never seen anything that President Trump has done? Have you not watched the guy even before he was president? Trump says whatever is to his advantage at the moment. It's one of the qualities that I find most annoying about the man. But that's who the guy is. That is consistent with everything that we have seen from President Trump thus far. And what was going on in that clip that you're talking about is President Trump was actually trying to encourage people to take the virus seriously. Because if you remember the timeline and you know what was going on in March 19th, Trump was trying to encourage different states to take the virus very seriously and take drastic measures, which is why he was saying, look, I always wanted to downplay it. My instinct was to not play into this. I wanted to make the virus sound less important or less deadly than it really was, but I can't do that because it is that uh, problematic. It is going to be this really big, huge global pandemic. That's what President Trump was actually saying in that clip. Now, did President Trump communicate that in the clearest possible way? No, he didn't. The president speaks in word salads. But there would be no motivation whatsoever for President Trump, who at the time, March 19th, when this was recorded, for him to be in the middle of trying to convince states to shut down and take it seriously, for him to say, you know what, I was intentionally downplaying it. I knew it was way worse than it was, and I just decided, no, it's, it's not that big a deal, and I'm just going to downplay it. That makes no sense if you know the timeline and know when President Trump was saying that. He was saying, look, my instinct was to downplay it, and if even me, the guy who wanted to downplay it, is saying that it's serious, you should take it seriously too. That's the point that Trump is trying to make. It would be like me saying, for example, uh, I guess the, the thing that I am most uh, ardent on would be being anti-communism. It would be like me saying, look, if I'm saying they're not communist, they're not communist because I'm the most anti-communist guy that there is. If I had worded it in that way, it could sound like I was intentionally trying to downplay the dangers of communism. But that's not what I was doing. I was saying, look, if I'm saying that it's not communism, obviously it's not communism. That's what President Trump is trying to emphasize to people. If I, the king of downplaying things and not wanting it to be a big deal, I wish it weren't a big deal, is saying it's a big deal and we need to take it seriously, then that means you should take it seriously too. That's the essence of what Trump is trying to convey to the public when he is speaking to Bob Woodward at that moment. So, um, remember, as well, that even, let, let's say, 
just to play into their argument and sort of break it down, even if they were right, even if their allegations are 100% true and Trump really believed that the virus was going to be this evil, terrible, horrible thing that was going to, you know, wreck the economy and cause a lot of people to die and get sick, even if it was as bad as he was predicting that it would be at that point on March 19th, even if that were the case, how would downplaying it help him politically? Because the allegation here is that Trump is acting nefariously, correct? That he knows that the virus is much worse than it is, but he is admitting to downplaying it because he would gain some kind of political advantage or, or get some kind of political leg up. If he really believed that, if he really believed it was going to be this bad, how would downplaying it help him? That doesn't make any sense. And for further reference on this, just check out this article in the New York Times. And this was taken right around the same time. In fact, I believe that this was March the 13th. So just six days before the event in question that we're talking about here. So this is the New York Times saying that the CDC's scenarios were depicted in terms of percentages of the population. So this is a report directly from the CDC. Between 160 million and 214 million people in the United States could be affected over the, over the course of the epidemic. And then it skips down to the bottom. As many as 200,000 to 1.7 people could die. So again... Let's just play into their argument, assume that their argument is correct. These were the estimates coming out of the CDC that Trump would have known about at the time. So let's say that because of this, Trump thinks that it is very bad and, and very terrible, and it's going to be a very, very bad virus that's going to kill up to almost 2 million Americans. In what universe does Trump look at that and go, you know what we should do? We should downplay it, you know, to protect the economy. Are you really making the case that President Trump, even if you believe he's nefarious and he's Hitler and he doesn't care about people's lives, even if you suggest that the only thing he cares about is political power and staying in office and all of this other stuff, why would he do that? Because any political advisor on planet Earth would tell him that if you're looking at a choice between 1.7 million dead Americans or a crash in the economy that you are far more likely to get reelected if you're the guy who oversaw a crash in the economy versus the guy that oversaw 1.7 million Americans dying. There is no universe in which the political math would suggest that a person should take that option if that option is available to him. There is no motivation whatsoever for President Trump to intentionally downplay a virus that he believed at the time was going to be much worse than it turned out actually being in order to score political points because he would actually score political points doing the opposite of that if that's what he really believed. And so they find themselves in a catch-22. Either Trump really did believe that the virus was going to be this bad, it was going to be this terrible, therefore he would have had no political motivation to have tried to downplay the virus, or he didn't really believe that and thus downplayed the virus thinking that it wasn't going to be as bad as it was, and turned out being right. Either way, it doesn't play into this narrative that he knowingly thought the virus was going to be bad, but refused to shut down the, you know, to, to suggest shutdowns or pretend that the virus wasn't going to be that bad. There's no motivation for him to do so. This theory only makes sense 
with hindsight, not in the moment. Yes, somebody that is looking at the story now, looking at it with hindsight, with the sensibilities that we have now, the knowledge that we have now, that it turns out the virus wasn't nearly as bad as that, that it wasn't going to result in 1.7 million Americans dying, that it wasn't going to have two-thirds of the American population contracting this virus. With that hindsight now, you could presumably look at this and go, ah, see, President Trump was downplaying the virus, and but there's no possible way for Trump to have known that in the moment. And frankly, if Trump could look into the future and did have the advantage of hindsight on March 19th, then it would have been wise for him to downplay the virus because he knew that it wasn't going to be as bad as it actually was. He can't simultaneously believe that the virus was going to be bad, thus want to downplay it, and then also think that the virus wasn't going to be all that bad and downplay it for nefarious reasons. Those two things cannot possibly happen. They cannot be true at the same time. And by the way, you don't have to take my word for it. Again, let's listen to Dr. Fauci. We get up in front of the press conferences, which were very, very common after our discussions mm -hmm. with the president. He really didn't say anything different than we discussed when we were with him. So that's Dr. Anthony Fauci, the guy who was with Trump every step of the way all through this saying, yeah, he didn't really distort anything. He basically said the same stuff behind closed doors that he did in front of it. It wasn't like we were having some kind of secret cabal back there thing. Ooh, this virus is going to be really bad. Now, let's pretend that it's not going to be. That's not a thing that President Trump did. And what's hilarious about this is Dr. Fauci saying this completely destroys the narrative of the left because they've been treating him this entire time like he's some kind of golden boy. Because they've tried to craft this narrative that Trump and Fauci hate each other, that Fauci's actually the good guy, he's actually the smart one, he's the one that is telling everybody to do what they ought to be doing, and that Trump is the evil, very bad ogre and, and very bad orange man that is keeping Dr. Fauci from uh, being able to do what he thinks needs to be done. But that all falls apart if Dr. Fauci's the one saying that, no, Trump wasn't distorting anything. He was saying essentially the same thing we were saying behind closed doors. See, this is part of the reason that it's very, very foolish to put people up on political pedestals. Now, in this case, it hilariously works out to my advantage, so I'm fine with it because I love seeing Democrats shoot themselves in their, in their own foot. But the reason that that's not a smart thing to do is because the left and the media has put Dr. Fauci on such a high pedestal that whenever he contradicts something that they're trying to say, they look foolish for disagreeing with him. And so that's really the, the problem that they've run into. And let's say that the, the media narrative were correct, that Dr. Fauci and Trump really do secretly hate each other, and, and Dr. Fauci has been wanting to, uh, he, he's the one that's really the champion and telling the truth, and Trump's just trying to destroy everything and lie about everything. Wouldn't Dr. Fauci have said something? Like, if Trump really was thinking that the virus was super bad, but he was intentionally downplaying it, don't you think that Dr. Fauci would have said something at the time? He can't be this courageous, crusading knight that's going to ride in on a white horse and is brave and, and all of this stuff 
and simultaneously be a coward who wouldn't tell the American people that the president is lying to you and trying to downplay it for his own political gain. He can't be those two people at the same time. So again, their narrative collapses in on itself because it's not consistent. And another thing, too, Democrats have also been downplaying the virus around this time. Because remember, that first recording that we heard from President Trump, that takes place on February the 7th. And then where he says that he would, you know, like to downplay the virus, that his instincts were to downplay the virus and to make it to where it sounds like it's not a big deal, that clip comes on March 19th. What were Democrats saying around this time in the coronavirus pandemic? Well, I'm glad you asked because I put together a video compilation of exactly that. The risk to New Yorkers for coronavirus is low. There's really no need to panic and to avoid activities that we always do as New Yorkers. This should not stop you from going about your life, should not stop you from going to Chinatown and going out to eat. I'm going to do that today myself. Come to Chinatown. Here we are. We're, again, careful, safe, and come join us. But I want to take a moment to say it's not a time to panic about coronavirus. We think we have the best healthcare system on the planet right here in New York. So uh, when you're saying what happened in other countries versus what happened here, uh, we don't even think it's going to be as bad as countries. You cannot contain the spread. You can slow it, you can limit it, but you can't contain it. That isn't a cause for anxiety either. It's not people in the stadium. It's not people in the big uh, open area or a conference and all. It's people close up to each other. Some places like Italy are doing mass school closures. That's not on the menu here. It, is there a theoretical uh, scenario where that could happen? Of course. But is it anywhere near to where we are now? No. The Department of Sanitation is ready for Mardi Gras. This is not Ebola. This is not SARS. This is not some science fiction movie come to life. Uh, you know, the hysteria here is way uh, out of line with the actuality and the fact. If you had to, would you close down the borders? No. There's a lot of restaurants that are feeling the pain of racism, uh, where people are literally not patroning Chinese restaurants. If you're under 50 and you're healthy, which is most New Yorkers, uh, there's very little threat here. This disease, even if you were to get it, basically acts like a common cold or flu. And transmission is not that easy. Downplaying it, being overly dismissive, or spreading misinformation is only going to hurt us and further advantage the spread of the disease. But neither should we panic or fall back on xenophobia. Labeling COVID-19 a foreign virus does not displace accountability for the misjudgments that have been taken thus far by the Trump administration. And travel restrictions based on favoritism and politics rather than a risk will be counterproductive. Staying home from work if you're... We want people still to go on about their lives. We want people uh, to rest assured that a lot is being done to protect them. That's an awful lot of heavy hitters in the Democrat Party suggesting that we shouldn't be doing travel bans, that we shouldn't be taking these kind of precautions, that the hysteria is way overblown, that it's not going to be that big a deal, that you should just, as Mayor de Blasio said at the last part of that, you should go about your life saying that 
there's no intention that we're, we're not going to be shutting down schools. That's not on the docket here. We don't think it's going to be as bad in other countries. Uh, Joe Biden in that last clip that he was in saying, uh, yeah, you should probably stay at home, you know, from work if you're feeling bad, but no intention of actually closing down businesses or closing down places where you would work wholesale. Just if you're not feeling well, then maybe you don't go in. By the way, it's hilarious because I agree with like 90% of what was said there. Uh, maybe not AOC suggesting that people are racist by not <laughs> because they're not going to Chinese restaurants. Uh, nobody was going to restaurants at that point. That was, it was not, they were not singling out the Chinese uh, because of that. But anyway, so you have every bit of that. The Democrats over and over and over again downplaying the virus. And you could chalk all of that up to them just not wanting the public to panic, not to, to you know, spiral into a tailspin, which is, frankly, I think fair in most cases. I think there were plenty of policy decisions made by those same people that were incredibly idiotic, the worst of all being Governor Cuomo, who was literally saying that you can't keep COVID-19 positive people out of nursing homes. But overall, or, you know, Bill de Blasio, that didn't disinfect the subway until like two months ago. Uh, you know, idiotic things like that. I, I, I want to say it was June, wasn't it? It was June where he, the first time they disinfected the subway. So all of that is the case. Yeah, I mean, you, you've got the, the blatant policy problems and doing things that were stupid. But I think that you could at least make the case that they were trying to downplay it, not because they were trying to give people a false, in, you know, false information, but that they were trying to keep panic from setting in. Okay, but if you're going to use that argument, you have to use the same argument with President Trump. If the media is going to be mad at President Trump for downplaying it, even though I've already explained that's not what he was doing, they have to be equally mad at all of these people. And you don't see anybody at the Washington Post or, you know, doing this for those people. Actually, I will say the Washington Post may be the only exception to that because I believe that the Bill de Blasio clip was the, the one that they assembled. But uh, you're not seeing that on MSNBC for sure. That's not happening on CNN where Andrew Cuomo's little brother has a primetime show. I mean, this is just not something that the left wants to focus on. But if you're going to be mad at Trump for downplaying the virus, you have to be mad at these people for doing exactly the same thing right along that same timeline. As late as in Mayor de Blasio's case, March 13th, saying, look, this is not something that should actually like affect your life or anything. You should just go about your business uh, doing your normal stuff. And the blatant double standard just drives me up a wall. And the thing is, holding people to the standard of 10 seconds ago is dumb. It's dumb, for example, when you look back at, you know, people that were living in the mid-1700s or late 1700s and upset at them for not holding to the sensibilities and standards of 10 seconds ago it's equally as dumb to look at a situation like this and look all the way back in March where there were a whole lot more unknowns and question marks and we didn't know exactly what was going to take place and judge them by today's standard as well. I actually wound up agreeing with most of the things that the Democrats in those videos were saying because the thing is, it turned out the virus wasn't nearly as big a deal as people originally thought that it was going to be. 
And so I was far more likely, uh, far more inclined to agree with some of the things or the sentiments that were being conveyed by them back then than I am now where anybody that says we don't need to shut down for the next 18 months is a horrible monster that wants grandma to die. Like, that, that's a much more reasonable position that they were taking back then. But the thing that's so ridiculous is, is that that's not the position of the left now, but nobody's calling them out for holding a different position back then, even though they are calling out President Trump for that. None of it makes sense, and the double standard is really ridiculous. And, and you know, the last point I really want to make on this is, if this were true, if this narrative that Trump intentionally downplayed the virus despite it being very bad, even though it turned out it wasn't, if that were the case, why is no one mad at Bob Woodward? Why is nobody upset with him for sitting on this and waiting for it to come out when it coincides with his new book coming out? If you're trying to suggest that President Trump, and I've heard people try to make this case, has blood on his hands by trying to downplay the virus, then isn't Bob Woodward just as guilty by sitting on this recording and not releasing it to the public all these months? Why is it on February 8th or February 9th that Bob Woodward didn't put this out and say, guys, look, the president is saying this virus is going to be super, super bad or, you know, even into March or April. Why wasn't Bob Woodward putting it out then? Because it wouldn't profit him. It would not help him sell copies of his book. This is a created hysteria to help make money. That's what it is. And it's hilarious that the party that claims to be anti-capitalism and, and anti-wealth and they want to create a wealth tax and all of this other ridiculousness, the party of socialism and AOC and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, they're not upset at Bob Woodward for that. They're not saying that he has blood on his hands. That doesn't make any sense either. You know, I genuinely can't tell. I genuinely cannot tell if the left is trying to make more out of this than they really should or they really know it to be, or if Trump derangement syndrome is really this bad and they really are this dumb. I can't tell if, if the, the left just genuinely is, is trying to drum up hysteria even though they know that the hysteria should not be there, or they really are this stupid that they, they can't see past the red that they see, or I guess the orange in this case, they can't see past the orange uh, that just goes in front of their eyes whenever they look at anything President Trump does, or they really are trying to set him up. I really don't know. But either way, this mess has got to stop. Take a step back, take a deep breath, count to three people on the left, and ask yourself if this is really worth it or if it's really helping your cause. Because I think the American people are going to, by and large, see through this ridiculousness. We're not even going to be talking about these recordings a week from now. And anybody that is, is probably so far gone and probably has already made up their mind. They're, they're so far in the orange man bad camp that you weren't going to change their mind regardless of what happened. This is not going to be something that changes a, a person that is at least open to maybe thinking about voting for either Biden or Trump. This is not going to be something that changes their mind about that. All right, so let's go ahead and go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. 
While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Chaplain's Report this evening come from the book of 1 Samuel. And really the only thing you need to know about this, because we are continuing our series in the book of Samuel, is David is bringing food to his brothers. So Jesse, David's father, he has three sons fighting in the war against the Philistines, and he wants David to be in charge of bringing food. This was a common practice back then. You didn't have military rations the way that you do now in America and other countries as well. When you were at war, your family had to be the one that was in charge of bringing you food. Same thing was true if you were, for example, in prison. The prison didn't provide food. You had to provide food. If you had a family member in jail, you were the one in charge of feeding them. And so this is what is really happening and going on here is that David is bringing provisions to his brothers that are off fighting the Philistines in the war. And this is the episode that we see play out in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 24 through 26. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. Talking about Goliath here, of course. And it will be the king, it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? So, this is in stark contrast. Stark contrast to everyone's reaction that has been at this battlefield and has seen Goliath so far. And I think that the Bible does intentionally go out of its way to highlight that contrast, to point out, hey, this guy sees this situation differently than every other person that is here on the battlefield. Everybody else sees Goliath, and they're afraid. They're trembling. It points that out in multiple times in the Bible. They're trying to emphasize everybody else is scared to death of Goliath, and David looks at it, and he goes, Who's this guy defying God? Where does he get off taunting us? That's David's reaction to it, which is just wildly different from everybody else, and I find that so interesting. Because here's the thing. The other Israelites, they knew that this was a defiance of God. They understood that. They understood that what was going on here is that Goliath was calling out the armies of Israel and calling out the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob specifically and basically saying, look, your God's not going to do anything. Your armies aren't going to do anything. Nobody can beat me. I am defying you and I am defying your God. They understood that, but their reaction was completely different from David's. Why? They both saw that. They both saw that this was a defiance from God, but the men of Israel they saw that, and it didn't make a big difference to them. It did to David. That's what made him so different, is that David saw this man clearly defying God and goes, oh, he just sold his own death warrant. That's how David sees the situation. And the reason is because David is looking at this through a spiritual lens. He's looking at it through God's eyes. And by the way, this is actually paralleled with 
the situation where he is chosen to be king. Because remember that Samuel is looking over David's brothers, and he's going, okay, it's got to be this guy, and God says no. And okay, it's got to be this one, and God says no. And we actually went over that just a, a few chaplains' reports ago. The reason for that is that God was looking not at their physical appearance, not looking at it from a worldly perspective. He was looking at the heart. He was looking at the spirit and the spiritual condition of these brothers. And he saw that David was the one that was most fit for this office. This is why. Because David is also looking at it from a spiritual perspective. He's seeing this situation the way that God is seeing it. Everybody else is, knows that he's defying God, but they don't see that as being a significant factor at play here. Might make them mad, but it certainly isn't enough to get them to understand, oh, he just defied the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This guy is going to be punished by God for that. That's how David sees this whole thing. He sees, he just insulted God. His days are numbered now. God is going to take a retribution on this uncircumcised Philistine for doing that. And so, it's kind of like, and it reminds me a little bit of a, a story I heard about Winston Churchill, that when they announced that the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor, Winston Churchill apparently, quietly, without saying a word, went to his desk, took a drink, and said, gentlemen, we've won the war. And the reason that he did is because he knew, now that the Americans are involved, this fight's over. We're done. We don't have to worry about anything else anymore because the Americans are going to come in. We are going to win this war because of this. Now, obviously, America is not God. But even more so than Winston Churchill, David now sees this fight as a sure thing. And just like Winston Churchill, who now charges into battle with, you know, a little bit more, more fire in his step, a, a little bit of swagger. That's how David's about to roll in and take on Goliath. Because it, now he knows, this man is defying God, which means God is on my side and is opposing this guy, which means I don't have anything to worry about when I fight this guy. You see, now he has seen God as being in play in this series of events. And now that God's in play, oh, this is going to be easy. This isn't going to be a big deal at all. And of course, it turns out that David was right. And I think that that's somewhat highlighted as well in this next passage that we're going to look at just a few verses later. Same chapter, 1 Samuel 17, verses 31 and 32. When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. So now that David perceives that God is on their side, that the, this Philistine Goliath is the enemy, he's got no chance because God is now in opposition to him. He just signed his own death warrant. David says, sure, I'll jump in that fight. Not going to break a sweat. David's confidence came from God. It didn't come from his own ability because he's just a boy. At this point, he's probably an early teenager. 13, 14, 15, something like that. And we're going to find out in a few verses, David can't even wield a sword yet. He's not been trained in battle. He's not a warrior. And despite all of this, he's convinced that he is going to destroy this guy because God is on his side. He knows that. 
And that's the same thing, the same attitude that we should be adopting too. Once we understand that God is on our side, that he is going to be with us in a struggle, we should be walking out there just like David went out against Goliath. We should be the first one to volunteer. Just like David does in this last verse, he says, yes, all I'm here and God is going to be with me. So I'm going to head out there. I'm going to take this guy out. So it's not just that David saw the situation correctly. It's also that he reacted correctly. Because even though we might see a situation correctly, know that God's on our side is like, oh yeah, God's going to take that guy out. He's wrong. But we don't want God to use us to do it, right? That's somebody else's task. We can leave that to another person. No, David took it upon himself. He said, this guy is clearly defying God, and somebody needs to do something about it, so I'm going to do something about it. He didn't even ask anybody else to take it up. Without another word, he's just like, yep, I'm your guy. I will be the one that rides into this battle. You see, everybody else saw the crowd. All the Israelites are looking around at their fellow Israelites and seeing how scared everybody is, and, and that's contagious. They think that they need to be scared too, and they trembled. David's looking around at this and going, what's wrong with you people? Why has nobody gone up against this guy? You guys are the army of the living God, and you're letting this guy push you around? I'm not going to do that. You see, David went the opposite way of what the crowd was doing, and that shows the mantle of a leader. This is the story that introduces David's personality, because we've seen him be anointed so far. We've seen God say that he's a good person, but we've not actually seen it play out in any meaningful way. This is a highlight of that. This is showing that David is ready and willing to lead. That even when the crowd is against him, he is going to step out there and do what he knows is right because it's the right thing to do. Sadly, that's the opposite of Saul. We've seen in this narrative so far, time after time after time, Saul's primary concern is what the crowd is doing, and he has shown that he will go along with the crowd rather than obey God. I mean, Saul is a lot like a lot of modern politicians. He's going to do whatever preserves his power. David has no power, at least not at this point, and says, I'm going to do the right thing regardless. doesn't matter to him. He is going to make sure that he is on God's side, because ultimately, this is a spiritual battle for David. David understands this is a spiritual conflict, and I think that at least part of it was David wanted to encourage Israel. The way that he uses his language here, the way that he talks about it, it seems as though he's trying to inspire courage in others while this is going on, he's saying, look at this guy. This uncircumcised Philistine is going to be the one defying God? Oh, no, no. This needs to be taken care of, and I'm going to be the one to do it. And I got to believe that there were quite a, bit of, uh, quite a few Israelites that were inspired even before he took on Goliath, just by his words. Maybe not enough to volunteer, but that courage had to be contagious, and this is the reason that David became such a fantastic leader. You see, sometimes it's going to fall to us. Sometimes we're going to see a need. We're going to recognize a need that needs to be fulfilled and nobody is fulfilling it. And because of that, the responsibility, the odious, will fall upon us to take up that mantle and to do the right thing. 
That is going to happen in our lives if we are going to be followers of God. Now, it may not be in a very obvious way the way David is doing it, but everybody is going to have to take the spiritual lead at some point, even if you wind up going it alone. David may have inspired quite a few people, but he still had to face Goliath by himself. Or at least with no other Israelite helping him there. He wasn't alone. But ultimately, we may have to do that too. And when we do, I hope that each and every one of us would have the courage that David did. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.